0: Chapter 4, Home Song Lyric From Wake Me Up by Avicii
1: Feeling my way through the darkness Guided by a beating heart I don't know where the journey will end But I know where to start At this stage of my own adventure Whenever I talk to anyone about this part of the story for the first time I feel a bit daft As though everyone already knows it Then I remember I didn't know about any of it until I was 38 years old and every single one of the people from around the world who I've coached on this topic had no idea either, despite being highly skilled, educated and bright people. This takes us right the way back to where it all started for each of us, our childhoods. It's about those formative years of our lives when we first learned how to be a human and to survive in
0: this world. Let me take you back. the comfy cave and the food pipe. This is a part of our
1: lives I've never heard anyone talk about, not really, and not in the sense of helping us to solve challenges we're facing when we've been on the planet for several decades. Do you remember the first nine months of your existence? No, me neither. But just think about it for a few seconds. From the moment you were conceived by your mum and dad getting jiggy after a few glasses of wine and a romantic comedy with just enough raunchy sex scenes to get their sensitive bits all tingly, or the moment your mum decided to get some sperm from a man who knows a man who told her the genetics were of the highest calibre, you existed for almost the first year of your life in a gentle, temperature-controlled, cushioned environment. Footnote. At the time of writing, I think they are the two basic forms of conceiving a child but feel free to add your own if I've missed anything out. You floated around without a care in the world. No particularly loud noises, no bright lights, and most importantly of all, a food pipe that delivered nutrients to you whenever you wanted them. No need to ask anyone for anything. Just floating around in the type of hotel I can't believe hasn't been built in Dubai yet, but no doubt will be once someone listens to this and gets a great idea. Then. One day, out of nowhere, while you're just floating around in the only world you've ever known, something starts rumbling. It's more than the rumbling noises you usually hear that come when who you will later learn to be called mum has eaten some particularly spicy food that didn't agree with either of you. No, this is more serious, you can sense it. All of a sudden, a doorway creaks open at the bottom of your temperature-controlled room, Loads of the water that you were floating in rushes out and you begin to get forced down a gap through which you instinctively know you can't fit. Sometimes an alien being actually reaches in with a massive metal tool and drags you out of your cave by your head. Can you imagine if that happened now or even anything remotely like it? I mean, the most stressful thing most people experience in their entire life on Earth is, as I understand it, moving house. And that's something we do through choice with a hand-picked team of removal people following months of planning. Imagine if one day the floor opened and someone just reached up and dragged you through a crack in the road by your head, taking you into a completely different world with a load of bright lights, loud noises and giant people telling you to stop crying stop crying are you serious you've just abducted me by my head from my home and you're telling me to stop crying i don't even know what crying is for fuck's sake i've never needed to make this noise before now but it very much feels like the right thing to be doing and where the fuck is my food pipe sorry about the colourful language babies really are foul mild when you learn to fully understand what they're saying and this is how each of us first enters planet earth if we're lucky, we had someone to keep us company through the trauma, or maybe someone just cut an open a nice big hole for us to be lifted from, but either way, the whole thing is traumatic. From that moment, we have to learn very quickly how to survive in this strange, loud, and
0: bright new world, which is when the problems start. Programming. Depending on your beliefs and things
1: you know that I might not, we might have different ideas about what is already programmed into a human child when it first enters the world. Some people believe that sexuality is a pre-existing program, others believe that gender itself isn't pre-programmed. Whatever you believe doesn't really matter for the purposes of this book though, provided we can agree that every human enters the world with only a minimal amount of programming. Footnote. There is a whole world developing about programming being passed through our genes, which we don't need to overly concern ourselves with for the purposes of this book. I think of it like a laptop that you've just bought from the shop. It has some basic programs already installed to get you going, but for the most part, you're going to have to add whatever it is you want to make it the laptop you need. Some people want Microsoft Word, others want Grand Theft Auto. So we bounce out into the world, kicking and screaming, then look up at the humans around us and say, okay, people, it's clear I need you to keep me alive. So let's figure out a way of working together until I can sort myself a food pipe again. And that's
0: when the programming begins. The cereal box story. Let's start with an innocent story that demonstrates perfectly how
1: we're all programmed by the people around us, mainly our caregivers, from the moment we enter the planet. A few months ago, I was at home in Liverpool and decided I fancied some cereal as a snack. I don't often eat cereal these days because since starting to focus more on my health a few years ago, I've realised most of it is just full of shit that doesn't do us any good, but just like other shit we like to eat and drink, every now and then I still fancy some. I went to the shops, bought my favorite brand and headed home. Standing in the kitchen while listening to music, I began to open the box. First, I opened the two longest cardboard strips at the top. Next, I folded out the two small flaps at the sides that are revealed after you open the longer flaps. Then I ripped one of those smaller flaps from the box, opened the plastic bag containing the cereal on the same side as the torn off flap and poured myself a bowl then i burst out laughing i'd been doing the work set out in this book for over two years by the time this incident happened so i'd become acutely aware of many things that i'd realized had been programmed into my subconscious without me knowing but i hadn't spotted this one before the thing is if you've been able to follow that description of a box opening i appreciate it might be difficult to picture you might think one part of it is a bit odd I've never seen anyone else in my adult life tear off that little side flap from the box before pouring their cereal, but I did it without even thinking about it. Why? Because that's how my dad opened cereal boxes when I was a kid. I haven't watched my dad open cereal for something like 28 years, but when it came to doing something I hardly ever do, I subconsciously reverted to how I was taught to do it when I was younger than I can remember. Of course, I don't think my dad ever sat me down and said, now look, son, here's an important life lesson about how to open cereal boxes. But when we bounce out of our safe little hotel room inside our mum, we don't have a program installed for how to open cereal boxes, so we have to get one from somewhere. Mine came from my dad. It's important here to stop for a few seconds and reflect on the power of that story. It might seem like it's just a cereal box, but it's far more than that it's everything. Think about it. If when we're kids, we don't know how to open cereal and we subconsciously pick up that skill from the people who raised us, what else did we learn? How to speak, how to think, how to love, how to relate to other humans. The list goes on and on. Exercise. Here's your first exercise. It's an easy one to break you in gently. Like most of the exercises I'll give you to do as we travel down this path together, it's best to do it in two parts. First, take some time to sit down with a pen and paper and really think about it consciously. After that, just allow the exercise to float around in your subconscious and notice when something crops up during your week. Take a few minutes to think about what your cereal box story is. Does one spring to mind immediately? Is there a quirky little thing your parents or the people who raised you do that you've realized you also do? If you can't think of one immediately, start trying to notice things as you go through your week. How do you drive your car or clean the toilet? What strange little things do you do that your partner or someone you live with has mentioned? Once you've found an example or two, consider how many other things you must have learned from your original caregivers without realizing it. Up until this point you might, like most people I've ever met, be telling yourself a story about how different you are to your parents or close family members. It might be worth
0: preparing yourself for that illusion to be shattered, but we'll come back to that later. Trauma and neglect The main problem with childhood is we experience the whole thing as children.
1: It wouldn't be nearly as big an issue if we handled the whole thing as adults, but unfortunately, unless your name's Benjamin Button, that's not how it works. An even bigger problem is when most of us reflect on a childhood, including our own, we look at it through the eyes of adults rather than those of children. If we consider someone with serious problems in their adult lives, maybe they're a drug addict or a serial killer, and we discover they suffered severe trauma as children, most people can see a clear link between the trauma and neglect the person suffered as a kid and the troubles they experienced years later. We might not fully understand or sympathise with the troubles experienced by the drug addict or killer, but at least we can see how they might have originated. Maybe the trauma was that their parents were drug addicts, or they were physically or sexually abused in their early years. Perhaps they were shown no love or were seriously neglected in ways we could never truly imagine. When we see that level of trauma or neglect, we can understand the link with problematic adulthoods. However, when we consider early years of life that were at the very least okay, and for many of us, including me, a dream childhood other children might only read about in fairy tales, it's more of a struggle to understand any connection to difficulties we face as grown-ups. After all, in those childhoods there is
0: no abuse, neglect or trauma to consider. Is there? The language we use. We'll talk more about this topic in a wider sense later, but it's worth addressing in relation to this specific
1: point. The issue is when we use words like abuse, trauma, and neglect, they carry certain connotations we might not want to associate with our own upbringing. Even if we had a bit of a difficult time, we are unlikely to use any of those words. But the truth is that basically everyone experiences trauma and neglect as children. Childhood is in itself a traumatic experience. Think back to the earlier examples of what it must be like being dragged, kicking and screaming into this world. When we think of trauma though, what we generally think of is what I've best seen described as capital T trauma. If we're thinking about trauma on a scale of 0 to 10, capital T trauma is 10 out of 10 on the scale. It's the child abuse, drug-addicted parents, and total neglect I mentioned earlier. The kicker, however, is that if a child experiences a large number of small T traumas that may each be 1 out of 10 on the scale, they can all add up to the equivalent of a 10 out of 10 capital T trauma. Does that make sense? It's important, therefore, that we gain a better understanding of what small
0: T traumas might look like to a child. The Still Face Experiment. A few months
1: before I began writing this book, I had the privilege of interviewing Dr. Ed Tronick and Dr. Claudia Gold for my YouTube channel and podcast, which you can find by searching for the Paul Cope Show on YouTube or your favorite podcast app. Ed and Claudia have between them written several books around this hugely important topic and are experts in the field. I recommend watching or listening to that interview and reading their books if you're interested in learning more about what we're about to discuss. In 1975, Ed conducted an experiment that was groundbreaking at the time and is still often referenced when discussing connections and disconnections between children and caregivers. Again, I recommend taking a few minutes to watch the experiment for yourself. It's available on YouTube by searching The Still Face Experiment Dr. Edward Tronick. In summary though, it goes along these lines. A baby who was around one year old is placed in a high chair facing her mum. The mum plays with the baby and engages with her in a very natural way. The baby is clearly happy and connecting perfectly well with her mum. Next, the mum turns her head away from her child and, when she looks back, has a completely still face. She shows no emotion and doesn't interact with the baby at all. To begin with, the child carries on as she was before. She tries to play and engage her mum in what they've been doing. However, she quickly becomes visibly upset trying all kinds of tricks to regain her mum's attention and connection. Slowly, as her different attempts to gain her mum's attention fail, the baby becomes more and more distressed, finally letting out a high-pitched squeal before breaking down into floods of tears. This all happens in a matter of moments and is disturbing to watch. Thankfully, at the end of the experiment, the mum re-engages with her baby and as she begins to interact and play with her again, the child quickly reverts to her happy self. Again, take a few moments to let that experiment sink in. This is an example of a baby potentially experiencing small T trauma, simply by its mother failing to engage actively with it for no more than a minute or so. It's also impossible to do it justice by describing it, so please do watch the video on YouTube. In that context, it becomes much easier to begin to understand how traumatic childhood is
0: For most of us. An important point. I find it difficult to talk and write about some of the following parts
1: and I want to be clear about something before we go further. This topic is not a case of us beating up our parents for the things we experienced as children. I will share some examples of things I experienced in my childhood and I share them only to give you examples of what you might have experienced in yours. It's likely we all experienced thousands of small traumas without ever realising. Understanding that we experience these types of traumas does not mean we had bad parents. It just means we had parents who were humans trying their best to raise children. That, in its very nature, is traumatic for everyone involved, in particular the kids, but also for the parents. My therapist once told me a story of going to see a high-profile therapist and author who was presenting to a room of other therapists. He began his talk with something along these lines. Let's get something out of the way before we start. Many of you often ask me whether you are damaging your children in some way by the way you are parenting them. You then want to go on to give specific examples of various things that have happened. To save us all time in the future, the answer to the question is yes. You are damaging your children. We all are. I often say to people now, regardless of any work you decide to do and changes you decide to make in your life, you either have already or will in the future damage your children. As will I. And the best thing we can all do is start putting away some money so that when our kids are 18, instead of buying them a car, we can pay for them to see a therapist and or coach to work through their issues. The fact we were damaged as kids and will damage our own kids does not make any of us bad people and the purpose of this section is not to beat anyone up. The point is to make us more aware of our actions and the actions of our parents and other caregivers when we were young that will lead to a better understanding of why we are the way we are so we can do something about it. After all,
0: we also got many of the best bits from us from our original caregivers. A faulty production line. I like to think of human life as
1: one big car production line. Just imagine for a second one of those huge factories full of conveyor belts, automated robots and humans putting together cars a piece at a time. That's just like us. We pop out into the world at the start of the conveyor belt and start to trundle through the factory while parts of us are slowly added onto the original chassis. Only instead of robots adding doors and wheels, we have the people who raised us inputting multiple programs about how to be a person. The main problem is that the people building the next generation of humans were built without knowing, with, with faulty programming of their own. They were taught how to build humans by the people who worked in the factory before them, so assume that's how you build humans. Then, years later, most of the humans built in the factory start to develop faults, and we all just accept that's normal because all humans have the same faults. But imagine if it was actually cars from a car production line we were talking about. Imagine if every car built in a certain factory started developing the same faults after driving 40,000 miles. If that happened, we'd go back to the original production line and figure out what was going wrong so we could fix it. Yet with the human production line, we just accept the faults are normal and carry on. The job for each of us is to revolutionise the production line so we can start building humans that don't break down after 40,000
0: miles. Kids don't do what you say, they do what you do. A few years ago, I heard the wrestler Triple H
1: talking on a podcast and he said a line I'll never forget and one which I've repeated endlessly ever since. Kids don't do what you say, they do what you do. The main problem with the faulty human production line is many adults have a conscious idea of good things to teach their kids, but the words that come out of their mouths don't match the way they live, which means their children receive mixed messages. Children learn a lot from observing the world around them and copying what they see. If what they are told by their parents contradicts what they witness from their parents, it doesn't stop them adopting the behaviour. It just means they learn that what they have adopted is not acceptable. It's amazing how often I see mums and dads baffled by the actions of their children when it's clear to see the kids are just copying their elders. The same principle applies to what we think we're teaching our children consciously, or what we think we were taught consciously as kids, and what we were actually teaching them, or what we were taught through the words and actions of the adults around us when we were growing up. They are often two very different things. Examples I think it's worth setting out a few examples of this part of the story to enable you to start identifying parts of your programming that were installed despite your original caregivers telling you with their mouths they were installing a completely different program. You might notice as you listen to the following illustrations that the same principles apply to many parts of your life as an adult. Think of how often you or someone you know says one thing with their words but conveys a completely different message with their actions.
0: Which is more powerful? The mobile phone challenge. Here's a very basic modern example.
1: If you have children and and struggle to get them to stop using their mobile phones, consider how often they see you or the other adults around them using their phones. I have witnessed on numerous occasions adults telling their kids repeatedly they shouldn't be using their phones as much as they do. Often moments later, I'll watch the parents indulging in addictive use of their own mobile phones. The children copy what the
0: parents do rather than do what they say. Always tell the truth. This is a more serious example of the same issue.
1: I've experienced myself and coached several people who have seen the same thing growing up. Most of us have been told repeatedly to tell the truth because telling the truth is the right thing to do but have then watched as our parents tell all kinds of lies to get through their life on a daily basis. Mostly little white lies, but sometimes great big lies of which we are aware, but are never discussed openly. The lesson we learn subconsciously is to tell lies when it suits us, while also learning that telling lies makes us a bad person, hence still adopting the behavior as well as taking another blow to
0: our self-worth. What do you want to be when you grow up? Here's a big one to end with, one which is very personal
1: to me and tends to resonate with lots of other people. I go into much more detail on this subject in my first book, The Seven Secrets to Change Your Career, but it's worth including some key points here. I could talk for hours just about the question itself. I think it should be outlawed. The subconscious messages we give when we ask a child what to be when they grow up are, first, that there is an answer, second that there's a correct answer and third that there's only one answer it's what leads most people to a lifetime of saying but i don't know what i want to be preventing them from making any changes it also confuses what we want to be with what we want to do to earn money which can in this day and age be completely different things on the specific topic of subconscious training though this is an area where adults use the techniques from the chris nolan movie inception to plant ideas deep inside their children's minds without usually being conscious they're doing it
0: i could give a thousand
1: examples of things i've witnessed to highlight this point but i'll limit it to a couple here's a conversation i overheard between a mom and a 13 year old son who wanted to be a movie star mom so what do you want to be as a backup plan if you can't be a movie star son nothing i just want to be a movie star mum well you have to have a backup plan so you need to pick something okay i'll be a singer no you can't say singer it can't be something that's like being a movie star it needs to be something else um okay i'll be a movie producer no 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 that doesn't work either it's got to be something normal like what i don't know like a doctor or a dentist Uh, okay well a doctor then oh great that sounds like a really good idea That same mum, when asked weeks later what her son wanted to be, declared excitedly he wanted to be a doctor, completely ignoring the fact he actually wanted to be a movie star, and the only reason doctor was ever mentioned was because she forced him to keep naming possible jobs until he found something she approved of. The kid then gets the powerful subconscious message, regardless of what his mum says through her words, that it's not acceptable for him to want to be a movie star my story, which is shared by many others, is far more subtle. Footnote, the long version of that story is in the opening chapters of my first book, which you can read or listen to for free by visiting changeyourcareer.org. The short summary of that story is as a little boy, I loved toy cars. I had a bucket full of them and would happily play with them for hours on end, One day when I was about three years old, I was in the back of my dad's car and saw a black Porsche pull up alongside us at the traffic lights. I asked my dad whose car it was and he told me it was their solicitors. I immediately said, I want to be a solicitor then. The irony was I couldn't speak very well at three, so couldn't even pronounce solicitor properly. Remember at that age, we don't even know most words. They're just noises we're making through our mouths that we see have an impact on the world around us. When we make the noises that sound like, I'd like some milk, the lucky ones among us as children would see a big human bring us some milk. So we learn to keep making those noises whenever we want milk. I learnt very quickly that if I made the noises that sound something like, I want to be a solicitor, they would make the big humans around me very happy indeed. I would be rolled out at family parties to the lines, tell everyone what you'd want to be. I would make the noises and everyone would smile, sometimes even applauding. Imagine how good that feels to a three-year-old, especially when I had no idea what I was actually saying. What I really meant was, I'd like to drive a nice car when I'm older. After a while of repeating the line to myself and to anyone who'd listen, it became second nature and soon turned into, I've always wanted to be a solicitor, even though I didn't have a clue what a solicitor was. If you ask my parents now, they will quite rightly tell you that no one ever told me I had to be a solicitor. I agree. The problem is not what I was or wasn't told expressly through people's words. It was the subconscious programming I received that being a solicitor was what everyone wanted me to do. Again, as I'll keep repeating, this isn't anyone's fault. We are guilty of the same things our original caregivers were guilty of, usually because we are blind to the subconscious behaviours we display from which others learn. Our behaviour in these situations also generally stems from our own emotional and psychological issues that
0: we'll explore in much more detail in the following chapters. Exercise. Audrey.
1: We need a way to identify some of the exercises we'll be doing so we can easily refer back to them later in the book. Someone who read an early draft of this suggested I should name those exercises for ease of reference, which is what I've done. This exercise is called Audrey. I don't think that's what the person who made the suggestion had in mind, but we are where we are. The purpose of this exercise might not make any sense right now. So just remember the Karate Kid training we discussed and how I promise it will all come together later on. For now, I want you to create a table with three columns. You can write this out by hand or use a computer. The method is not overly important for this. In the first column, I want you to write the names of all of the people who you were close to growing up and who had an influence over your childhood. That might be your parents, your grandparents, your brothers or sisters, your aunties, uncles or cousins, foster parents, care home workers, or anyone else you can think of. There are no right or wrong answers, so if you think someone should be on the list, put them on it. In the second column, I want you to write down all of that person's good character traits. And in the third column, I want you to write down all of that person's bad character traits. Does that make sense? The trick here is some of the people on your list you might see as angels and others you might see as demons. Many people I've worked with have at least one parent they talk about in glowing terms and another they don't like very much at all. The challenge with that is when it comes to listing negative traits of someone we think is an angel, we might struggle and vice versa for the demons. If you're struggling on either side for extra motivation, I want you to do one or both of two things. Imagine that I have a briefcase containing 10 million pounds and it's all yours if you can find the traits you say aren't there. For example, if you think your dad is an angel and don't want to write anything negative, picture that you win 10 million pounds if you can come up with five things. If that's not enough motivation and you'd prefer something darker, Imagine I'm holding a gun to your head or to the head of the person you love the most in the world and I'll pull the trigger unless you
0: find five things for the list. See where you get to then save the table for later. We'll come back to it. Developing new language. As I've already stressed and will continue to
1: stress, the main challenge when talking about these things, if you've had at least a reasonably good childhood with parents you consider to be caring and loving, is that describing experiences as traumatic or neglectful sounds awful. I would never want anyone to think I consider my childhood to have been traumatic because of my parents. My mum and dad are the most caring, loving parents anyone could wish to have. My childhood was filled with happy memories, laughter and love, yet I still reached my mid-30s and realised I had a lot of inner demons I needed to deal with. That leads me, as it often does, to think we need to start developing new language to use around these topics. The reality is that childhood is traumatic, full stop. Rather than asking people whether they experienced any trauma as a child, I now just ask, are you human and were you ever a child? If the answers to both of those questions are yes, then you have experienced trauma that more than likely needs to be processed and dealt with. I always remember reading a chapter in Russell Brand's book, Recovery, which played a key part in the early stages of my transformation which was headed something like, are you a bit fucked? As the months and years passed after first reading that, I realised the only problem with it was it didn't go far enough. Instead of asking that question, it's far more appropriate to say, you almost certainly are a bit fucked and go from there. Footnote. In the years that follow this book being published, we might even reach a stage at which the same points apply to the artificial intelligence machines being built by some of the most dysfunctional members of our society because, after all, those machines are being programmed in the same way we were all programmed as children, so there's no reason the faults of their makers won't be passed on in the exact same way. Which means if you're a robot listening to this, welcome to the party. What is trauma? I think it's worth setting out what I believe to be trauma, although it's worth always bearing in mind this is simply my interpretation based on my current beliefs, which could well change as the years progress. It is also, of course, a very simple summary of something about which there have been endless books and articles written. To me, trauma is anything that causes us to suppress any part of our true self and or to create an adaptation of our true self. I talk about both of those in detail in the next two chapters. Trauma can also be anything that leads us to believe at a subconscious level
0: we are not good enough as we are. Capital T trauma. In my view, capital T trauma is anything from our
1: childhood that had a big impact on us and we are likely to recognise as traumatic when looking at somebody else's life. So, sexual abuse, being raised by alcoholics or drug addicts, being the victim of or experiencing physical violence of any type including witnessing your caregivers abusing each other physically, being abandoned by a caregiver totally, for example, a parent leaving when you were young, or being abandoned temporarily on numerous occasions, for example, being left alone for long periods while you were young. On the trauma scale running from 0 to 10, think of it as anything from 8 to 10. Small t trauma. In my interpretation, this can be practically anything to a kid depending on how it was interpreted at the time. Think of it as anything from one to seven on the trauma scale. It could be a good friend laughing at us, or a parent making a flippant comment about our weight. It might be a caregiver regularly judging other people for being bad or stupid, or a grandparent rewarding us for being special. Crucially, it could just be a child dropping their ice cream on the floor. To us as grown-ups, dropping an ice cream might be a mild annoyance, but... To a three-year-old whose entire world was wrapped around that delicious treat, dropping it could be the equivalent of you returning home from work one day to find your home had burned to the floor. Just pause for a moment and imagine if that happened. And instead of someone consoling you, they just said dismissively, oh, get over it, I'll buy you another house. I'd guess that wouldn't quite make up for the emotional trauma you'd just experienced. It's always key therefore to try our best to see how we would have interpreted an event as a child rather than how we might interpret the same thing as an adult. It also isn't necessarily the event itself that's important, more how we reacted to it emotionally and what impact it had, more on this later as well. With any type of trauma, it's worth having a little wander back through our family tree because while we might not have experienced any capital T traumas as children ourselves, it usually doesn't take much to go back through the generations to find someone who did experience big traumas and passed down the effects. A very simple example in my life and the life of most people my age is my grandparents all lived through World War II. My granddad on my dad's side fought at Dunkirk, survived, returned home with not even a thought that therapy might be required and was married and having children within 12 months. It's hard to even begin to imagine the level of trauma he experienced and passed down through my dad, especially bearing in mind he was raised by a parent who lived through World War I and
0: had no doubt passed similar trauma down to him. Exercise. Kenneth. Do this in the same way as the
1: first exercise, beginning by taking some time to sit with pen and paper and consider what capital T or small T traumas you might have experienced as a child. Does anything spring to mind? Whatever comes up, write out in as much detail as possible what happened. After doing that consciously, allow the exercise to drift through your subconscious as you go through life and note anything that comes up. Again, writing in
0: detail about whatever arises. A new expression. As I've said above... I don't think it's useful for
1: us to continue referring to all events that happened in our childhood as traumatic or neglectful. Now that I've explained what I think we mean when we discuss those terms, I think it's time to come up with a new expression for us to use for anything we don't think falls into the definition of small t or capital T trauma. My view is we'd all be better off thinking of the other things that happened to us as children, however big or small, as programming experiences. These are the events that shaped how we developed from the moment we entered this world. No one is to blame for them. So by referring to them as programming experiences from now on, we can think of them in more neutral terms. All traumas can be included within this definition, as well as any other experience we would rather not label as trauma while still wanting to acknowledge its impact on our life. Examples of programming experiences. This is one of the parts of trying to share the lessons I've learned that's much more difficult to do through a book than it would be if we were talking face to face. In person, I could ask you to tell me all about your childhood and we could take our time to pick out all the bits where you had programming experiences of any kind and dig beneath so you can see what parts of them still affect you today. Obviously, that's not possible with a book. So, the next best thing I can do is attempt to provide some examples of programming experiences that you might be able to relate to or at least might prompt you to think of other experiences you had which installed any form of program in your operating system it's key to note however that this is by no means an exhaustive list and programming experiences come in all shapes and sizes the kicker being that often things we might label as fairly positive programming experiences might result in what we consider to be negative consequences when they are perceived through the lens of a little human In the table below, I've set out some examples of programming experiences you might have experienced as a child and the way in which the experience could have programmed you from a child's viewpoint. Obviously, some of the examples are clearer than others, and I've omitted examples of the bigger, more serious programming experiences because I think at this stage of our lives, it's fairly obvious to us what those events might be, as described as capital T traumas in the earlier section. It's also important to note that children pick this stuff up from the behavior of the adults around them, as well as things they might overhear. So if you never tell your kid that they're too fat, but you constantly talk about how people who are overweight are disgusting, the lesson your kid receives is that being overweight is bad and therefore not acceptable, which installs unhealthy programming through little ears about how good they are as a human being linked to the percentage of fat on their body. The same goes for any of the examples shown in the table so this isn't necessarily just about the things you experience directly
0: programming experience being told to be good i.e be a good boy be a good girl or be a good person
1: the programming potentially received by the child We might as well start with one of the most general and wide-ranging examples that's likely to make you sit back in your seat and exclaim, well, Paul, that's ridiculous. We were all told that, weren't we? And I say that to my kid all the time. Why do you think I'm using it as the first one? Being told to be good, especially when done repeatedly, as we tend to do to our kids as it was most likely done to us, is being told subconsciously that being bad is not acceptable and consequently that being bad is something to be ashamed of. But guess what? There's a part of all of us that's bad. We're humans, not pigeons, and we are acutely aware from a very young age of the part of us that wants to scream and shout, be selfish and jealous, and generally act in a way the people around us do not like. The programming comes from being taught those parts of
0: us are not acceptable. They are not good enough. Experience number two, being told you weren't wanted.
1: This is a fairly obvious one that more people experience than you might think. One or more of our parents telling us we weren't wanted as a child can be a hugely negative programming experience because at its very core is a message we shouldn't even be here. There are a few things I can think of that would be more traumatic for little ears to hear. Programming experience. Being told we don't know where we got you from by a parent or caregiver. In a similar way to the example above, Hearing this as a child can lead to us feeling that we don't belong in the very place we're meant to feel safe and secure. Programming experience. Being told you were special. Here's the first counterintuitive one for you. I come across a lot of people who envy one of their siblings for being the golden child, but speaking as a reformed golden child, I can say with certainty it's not a role anyone should want. The subconscious message received by kids who are told they're special is they're not enough or not fully loved if they're not special. The problem being we all know deep down that a big part of us is just a lazy bum who wants to sit watching cartoons and picking our nose all day. And I'm talking about 40 year old me here, not just a four year old version. And we know that part of us is definitely not in any way special. Hence, A programming experience with potentially negative consequences. Next experience. Being told nothing is ever good enough or that we must always do better. Another fairly obvious one. But hearing this message either directly or subconsciously can build a belief from very early on that we're not good enough just the way we are. Programming experience. Learning that we shouldn't talk about our problems, we should just bury them or laugh them off. I would in the past have described this as a very Irish Catholic problem, given my background. But since working with people of all different religions around the world, I've realised it's common among many different groups. The idea that we can't talk about our problems or our, in inverted commas, negative emotions causes trauma because we know we have them. So learning that they're not to be discussed teaches us that a part of us is something to be ashamed of. I've mentioned laughing things off here because in many of our cultures and families, laughing at everything is seen as a very healthy way of dealing with things this can be absolutely true but not if it's at the expense of ever dealing with emotions or experiences for what they are programming experience being abandoned or left alone this could be a one-off event or happened multiple times when you were a kid either way the message you're likely to have received is that you weren't worthy of your caregivers keeping you safe and secure Which can be a programming experience with potentially negative outcomes. Programming experience, being praised for being a high achiever. Another counterintuitive one that, if you're a parent, is likely to fill you with dread. We've all been taught, both consciously and subconsciously through the years, that we should praise kids when they do really well, whether that's at school, in sports, or in their hobbies. The problem with training children like their dogs and rewarding them for doing what we want, though, is they subconsciously link achievement with the idea that they are loved and therefore good enough, which means a subconscious belief can form that they aren't loved or good enough without the achievement. The fact that none of us can always be high achievers again causes us to be ashamed of the part that's lazy and stupid. Programming experience. A caregiver never admitting they were wrong or apologizing for anything. The subconscious programming here can be that it's not acceptable to accept we
0: are wrong about anything. Programming experience. Being told a parent wasn't angry, they were disappointed. Another classic
1: one you might well have repeated yourself if you've already got kids. I think we all remember this being said to us because of how we felt when it was said, which is the key. If I think of someone I love telling me they were disappointed in me as a child, I can still feel the shame running through my veins. Someone we respect looking us in the eyes and telling us they're disappointed is possibly the ultimate you're not good enough message, because the disappointment often feels as though it's about who we are as a person, not about what we've done. Experience. A caregiver not being able to fully express their emotions. Another very general one which most of us are likely to have experienced because of the faulty production line of humanity. By learning from humans who can't express their emotions fully, we learn to do the same thing to suppress and repress rather than express. More on this in the next chapter. Last program experience. A caregiver not being able to set healthy boundaries or say what they want. A final general want to round us off. I'll talk a lot more about saying what we want and setting healthy boundaries in the second half of the book, but this is how we learn not to do it well or at all. Watching our caregivers be walked all over or not being able to express what they want teaches us to do the same thing. Examples of my programming experiences. I'm going to share with you two stories from my childhood that until I began my own adventure down this path, I had no idea had any bearing on who I was as a grown man. I want to stress again that these stories are in no way a reflection of my parents who I loved dearly and wouldn't swap for anyone. I had an incredible childhood and I’m very grateful for everything my mom and dad did for me throughout my formative years. If anything, these stories simply highlight how even in the best of childhoods, we encounter many very normal programming experiences that shape who we are and are often responsible for the problems and challenges we face later in life. The fact that these are two of the stories that spring to mind about my own programming experience as a child actually goes to show just how good a childhood I had for many other people. Experiences are far more disturbing than the examples you're about to listen
0: to. The maths test. One day when I was about 12 years old, I came home from school very pleased with myself.
1: I bounced into the house and proudly proclaimed to my mum that I'd achieved 95% in my latest maths test. My mum was delighted. The smile beaming on her face, telling me how proud she was and how clever I was. I felt very clever indeed. Go and tell your dad, she said. My memory is of walking into the hallway of our house and looking up to see my dad's face. When I told him the news, he said with a smile, what happened to the other 5%? And that's where my memory ends. The main problem with most trauma we experience at any age is that our memory tends to shut down at the most traumatic point, which is where we carry forward the lesson. Resolving old trauma can often mean revisiting it and finding the end of the memory, which is usually not very traumatic at all. We'll talk more about all of this later in the transform section, but the point of this story is that if someone, anyone, including my dad, was to react in the same way to me sharing news I'm proud of today, after all the work I've done on myself, it wouldn't even touch the surface. But to a 12-year-old boy desperately seeking the approval of his parents, I took one lesson from that experience, that I wasn't good enough. Not that the test result wasn't good enough, that I wasn't good enough. This is the other problem with our programming experiences. They're not necessarily logical. As an adult looking back, I can imagine the end of that story is that we went out as a family for a meal to celebrate my success. But my childhood memory ends at the point I experienced the thing that shook my internal system. That experience is no longer an issue for me as a grown-up, but combined with many other similar programming experiences from when I was a kid, all of which were very common things experienced by children, It helped to explain a big part of the personality I developed as the years went by. More on that
0: later. The Stupid TV Show This story is more difficult to recall and is very hazy even now.
1: It only came back to me several months into working on all of these things with a therapist and coaches. I must have been between six and eight years old and was sitting in front of the TV in a typical kid's position, around four feet away from the screen, sitting with my legs crossed. I can't even remember what show I was watching, but I do remember it being the type of absolutely ludicrous comedy I love to this day. I was barely laughing at the TV, watching these grown men being completely stupid, making everyone else laugh. At some point, my mum wandered into the room to see what I was laughing at. She took one look at the screen, looked back at me and said something like, I'll never understand why a clever boy like you finds this stuff funny. Guess what message a kid takes on board when they hear something like that? you might have guessed it. You're not good enough. Not that the show was stupid or that my mum and I have different tastes in comedy, but that I wasn't good enough just the way I was. As with the first story, this isn't a reflection on my mum in any way. She was and still is the best mum in the world. She showered me with love and affection every day of my life. If she saw me watching the same type of comedy now, she'd no doubt say a similar thing. She often looks at me like I'm insane when I act like an idiot to make people laugh. As a grown man who's been on the adventure I have, it doesn't impact me at all now. My mum doesn't need to like the same type of comedy I like and I don't need to enjoy the soap operas she loves. The point of the story is the same as before. How we experience events as children is not the same as how we might experience them as adults. It's also crucial to note that the way our parents or original caregivers raised us is largely how they were raised themselves, often with a few modifications they've added along their own journey
0: which is where the idea of the faulty human production line comes from. Exercise, Elsie.
1: Take some time to think about the things that happened to you as a kid that could have led to you receiving programming on any level. Think about my examples, then reflect on the stories you've got from when you were growing up. It might be that you've got some big examples that easily spring to mind and or some smaller events or experiences that come to you over the next few weeks. For me and the vast majority of people I've worked with, there were childhood stories that came to mind immediately, even if memories from childhood are few and far between, which is common, especially with people who learned how to repress their emotions well as children. Whatever springs to mind first for you is worth writing down before going any further. As a tip, often the incidents that created impactful programming experiences as children are told as funny family stories It's amazing how often someone will tell me a story about their family that's recounted as a joke while I'm sitting there thinking, well, that's another pile of programming loaded onto a kid that's going to need unpicking in a few years. Remember, the point of this is not to beat up our parents. The vast majority of the time, the things we do as humans are done with the best of intentions, regardless of how they might look from the outside. And anything your parents have done that caused programming in your life that you now consider to be less than ideal, was passed down to them from previous generations so they're not to blame either they were just doing the best they could do with the training and programming they'd had if you get stuck on the idea that doing this exercise is itself a criticism of people you love you're unlikely to get very far with it so do your best to let go of it being a blame game the purpose of all of this is to figure out who we really are and why we are the way we are so we can consciously repair the damage and transform our lives the smaller programming experiences might also not appear to have caused any problems at first glance so it's important to really think about the subconscious message you might have received through childhood experiences as we go further through the following pages you'll see more examples of the things we experience as kids that might have led to issues in your adult life but for now do your best to put yourself in the mindset of being the little version of you again rather than looking back at things as a grown-up. Remember, we can experience program experience as kids through the smallest of things. A flippant comment, a funny look, something someone always said about us as a joke that actually made us feel unloved. Your challenge is to go back into those old stories and memories and see what you can find that implanted messages in your subconscious
0: that could still be causing you issues today. The Adverse Childhood Experience, ACE, study.
1: Just in case it sounds like I might be making all this up, it's worth referring back to one of the most important public health studies of the past few decades. The ACE study came out in the late 1990s, taking more than 17,000 people who were seeing doctors for routine checkups and asking them about different areas of adverse childhood experiences, ACEs, and comparing the group who experienced four or more ACEs With a group that experienced none the results were jaw-dropping as the number of aces a person suffered increases so did the likelihood the person would suffer from alcoholism as an adult experience chronic depression be the perpetrator of more domestic violence be a smoker attempt suicide have an increased chance of teen pregnancy have serious financial problems and serious problems performing in their job and from a health perspective suffer considerably more health problems, including chronic illnesses, be obese, and on average, die 20 years younger. It's worth noting that the study's participants were mostly middle and upper middle class college educated people from San Diego with good jobs and great healthcare. So this wasn't targeted at poor or deprived sections of society. This applies to everyone. For balance, It's also crucial to point out that correlation and causation are not necessarily the same thing, so just because two things happen at the same time doesn't mean one caused the other. The findings in this study, however, had so many correlations between higher ACE scores and a multitude of problems in adult life that it's difficult to ignore. Though we can acknowledge at the same time, life is a complex series of millions of events And it's impossible to ever truly separate true causes. My view is, if it seems to make logical sense and it does no harm to explore further, why wouldn't we? If you agree with that principle, here's the ace questionnaire for you to find your own score. Answer yes or no to each of these things prior to your 18th birthday. Did a parent or other adult in the household often or very often swear at you, insult you, put you down or humiliate you or act in a way that made you afraid that you might be physically hurt? Did a parent or other adult in the household often or very often push, grab, slap or throw something at you or ever hit you so hard that you had marks or were injured? Did an adult or person at least five years older than you ever touch or fondle you or have you touch their body in a sexual way or attempt or actually have oral, anal or vaginal intercourse with you? Did you often or very often feel that no one in your family loved you or thought you were important or special or your family didn't look out for each other, feel close to each other or support each other? Did you often or very often feel that you didn't have enough to eat had to wear dirty clothes, and had no one to protect you, or your parents were too drunk or high to take care of you or take you to the doctor if you needed it. Were your parents ever separated or divorced? Was your mother or stepmother often or very often pushed, grabbed, slapped, or had something thrown at her, or sometimes, often or very often, kicked, bitten, hit with a fist, or hit with something hard, or ever repeatedly hit for at least a few minutes or threatened with a gun or knife? Did you live with anyone who was a problem drinker or alcoholic or who used street drugs? Was a household member depressed or mentally ill or did a household member attempt suicide? Did a household member go to
0: prison? The total number in the yes column is your ACE score. How did you get on? A twist in the story. The twist in this part of the story
1: for me was that when I completed the ACE questionnaire about childhood trauma, I scored zero out of ten. That made no sense to me because everything I'd learned about childhood trauma before that point led me to be convinced my childhood experiences were the root of the problems I was facing in my adult life. Which is when I first started thinking about the language we use around this topic that we've already discussed earlier in this chapter. The creators of the ACE study and many esteemed experts since have acknowledged that the 10 questions are limited and do not come close to covering all possible traumatic experiences a child might encounter. Which led me to thinking about the study in more general terms. If we can be fairly confident that adverse childhood experiences have a strong association with problems later in life, we can go beyond the restricted list of 10 questions and simply ask ourselves how many adverse childhood experiences we faced which takes us back to the exercises we've already completed. Maybe you scored four or more on the traditional scale anyway, or maybe, like me, your childhood didn't contain those types of extreme traumatic events. Either way, it's hard to argue against the theory that adverse childhood experiences are the source of so many challenges we see as adults. The extremely good news after all this, though, is we can repair the trauma and programming experiences we had as kids in our adult lives. Which is what this book is all about. That's it for the free chapters. Thank you for listening to them. I hope you enjoyed them. To buy all 650 pages of the full book in paperback, Kindle, or audio format, please visit amazon.co.uk or the relevant Amazon website in your country if you're outside of the UK. Thanks again.